the Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. Already we're at the third scene of the play and we're back with the witches. Presumably now we are on the heath where they said they'd be meeting. They've told us that they will be meeting with Macbeth and we've just had a full scene of descriptions and reported information making us in the audience all the more eager to meet our title character. The stage directions give us thunder to start the scene, another dramatic addition to build up the entertainment. The three witches appear to arrive from separate directions as their conversation begins with questions about what they've been up to. The first witch asks, Where hast thou been, sister? And the second replies, Killing swine. I've never seen it done in performance, but I would love to see a production wherein this witch arrived on stage wiping pig's blood off her hands. It's such a surprising and sort of violent answer, and indeed murdering domestic animals was another standard crime that you could expect from a witch. A woman getting blood off her hands is an image that occurs two further times in the play, but as we're about to see, three is the magic number and which number three now asks which number one sister where thou and the first witch has a story to tell a sailor's wife had chestnuts in her lap and munched and munched and munched give me quoth i a roint thee witch the rump-fed runyon cries her husband's to aleppo gone master of the tiger but in a sieve I'll thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll do, I'll do, and I'll do. This fixation with threes is built in everywhere. There are three witches speaking, and threes are built even into her manner of address. She describes a sailor's wife sitting and eating chestnuts, and we get the verb three times. She munched and munched and munched. Clearly the chestnuts look good, and our witch asks for one. Give me, quoth I, she says, and the sailor's wife sends her packing. A roint thee, witch, is her response. This is the only time the word appears as itself in the play. Not to be outdone with the name-calling, our speaker calls the woman a rump-fed runyon. She's already given us this image of her horsing into the chestnuts, and now she's also rump-fed. She sounds like a spoiled, fattened creature, who could easily have shared, but chose not to. Runyon is a derogatory term for a woman. The only other instance of it is in The Merry Wives of Windsor, a play chock-full of insults. A very angry Ford cries, in this instance, Out of my door, you witch, you hag, you baggage, you polecat, you Runyon. Out, out, I'll conjure you, I'll fortune tell you. Our witch, in this play, is rightly annoyed that this spoiled creature is so selfish, and so she's going to have her revenge. Her husband's to Aleppo gone, master of a ship called the Tiger. And the witch outlines her plan to chase the Tiger to Aleppo, sailing, as witches were reputed to do, in a sieve. Witches were also believed to be able to transform themselves into rats, but were recognisable as witches because they had no part of themselves that could become a tail. So if you see a rat without a tail, beware. It could just be a witch. Just as the sailor's wife was munching times three, the first witch ends her plan gleefully proclaiming, I'll do, I'll do, and I'll do. 
her weird sisters know well the kind of mischief that she's going to cook up, and so there's no need to spell it out. They are eager to help, too. The second witch says, I'll give thee a wind. I did not know this until I researched this episode of the podcast, but apparently witches were also famous for selling winds. In Thomas Nash's comedy, Summer's Last Will and Testament, you'll see why I love this, he writes that in Ireland and in Denmark both, witches for gold will sell a man a wind. Immediately, I want to know what kind of a bag she might sell it in. And if you believe that you can buy a wind, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you. But here, our witches, with legit generosity, are giving them away. First witch is grateful and responds with, Thou art kind. The third witch also offers one, and I another. And the first witch has everything she needs for this odyssey of revenge. I myself have all the other. And the very ports they blow, all the quarters that they know, with a shipman's card. I will drain him dry as hay. Sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his penthouse lid. He shall live a man forbid. Weary seven nights, nine times nine, shall he dwindle, peak and pine. Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest-tossed. The beginning of this little speech is a bit confusing. It's a threat that these winds will blow and cause havoc for the tiger, even in places that they should feel safe in ports, in locations that should be familiar, and the places on their nautical map or shipman's card. And the very ports they blow, all the quarters that they know with a shipman's card. As if the winds weren't trouble enough, she also has plans for what she's going to do to this individual sailor, all because his wife wouldn't share her chestnuts. I will drain him dry as hay, she says. There's a bit of a sexual threat in this. She could mean impotence, or sterility, or both. Either would be a cruel revenge against the wife's future happiness. The image of the witch draining a man dry makes her sound like a succubus, a particularly threatening kind of demon that has sex with men. She also threatens that he will have no rest. Sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his penthouse lid. His eyelids, she's saying, will see no sleep. He shall live a man forbid. He will be cursed. And now we get something really cool. She says that this man was going to dwindle peak and pine for nine times nine seven nights. That's 81 weeks. Now, three to the power of three to the power of three is as many threes as you can imagine. It's fully 81. And while this is triple E and magic-y enough for this witchy threat, there's even more going on. We believe this play was first performed for King James in August of 1606. But, if you happen to have been a subscriber to Shakespeare Quarterly in 1956, you may have already read a little page-long article by Edward Allen Loomis all about the Master of the Tiger. He describes the very real, very troubled voyage of a ship called the Tiger that went, indeed, to Aleppo. Sailing on the 5th of December 1604, dropping anchor on its return on the 27th of June 1606, Omitting two days that the tiger was in port, the ship was away from England exactly 567 days. And can you imagine what 81 multiplied by 7 is, weary 7 nights 9 times 9, is exactly 567? Of course, 
we cannot know if Shakespeare had or had not heard about the miserable time that the tiger had between England and Aleppo. There were storms and pirates and many other miseries. But I think it's way more exciting to assume that he did know and that he's popped in this little detail to make some sense of their awful journey. The witch might not have had the power to sink the ship. Witches have limits. But she certainly claims the ability to mess things up. Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest-tossed. Whether or not the audience was delighted at this reference to the tiger, she keeps going, and she produces a little talisman. Look what I have, she shouts. The second witch is very interested, and demands, show me, show me. And, since it's not a very big item, the first witch explains what she's holding. Here I have a pilot's thumb, racked as homeward he did come. Now, this is even more alarming. We've had plenty of proof already that these are dangerous witches. Their familiars have been calling them their kind of strange, spooky language and all of these threes through it, not to mention all of these short lines that seem to rhyme. But this is incredibly dangerous. Witches were such a concern that in the very first year of his reign, King James enacted a law that would give a death sentence for the possession of, and I quote, the skin, bone, or any other part of any dead person to be employed or used in any manner of witchcraft, sorcery, charm, or enchantment. So here's our first witch standing before the king, proudly showing a man's thumb, a crime that should carry the death penalty. And it's not just any man's thumb. This might sound like a stretch, but there is a case to be made for whose thumb this is. Witches were one problem in Jacobean England, but an even bigger threat came from the Jesuits. England was by now a determinately Protestant Anglican country, but Jesuits were still fighting their fight in the hope of restoring Catholicism and bringing England back to the bosom of the Church in Rome. The year before Macbeth was first performed, a group of Catholics came shockingly close to blowing up the Parliament, the heir to the throne, and the King himself. The gunpowder plot was believed by many to have been masterminded by Jesuits. And if you don't think that the gunpowder plot had its influence, bear in mind that to this day, on the 5th of November, they remember. Among the most famous Jesuits ever to preach in England was a man called Edmund Campion, who was hanged, drawn and quartered in 1581. It's about 25 years before the play, but he was incredibly famous. He was severely tortured on the rack at the Tower of London having been captured when he returned to England from Prague on his mission to convert England again. Racked as homeward he did come, indeed. Just as there's an essay about the Master of the Tiger, there's one about the pilot's thumb, full of shocking details of the fight against witches and Jesuits in the 16th and 17th centuries in England. I'll put more details in the show notes on the website, but certainly Edmund Campion did lose his thumb in a melee, and it's entirely possible that this was a very cheeky, cheeky prop for Shakespeare to put in a witch's hand. Certainly we'll need to keep an eye out, since there are probably more Jesuits than witches in this play. While this first witch displays this thumb, whoever it belonged to, the third hears. A drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come. So our hero is finally about to appear, but their business is not fully done, and so the three witches finish this spell to mess with the tiger. All three of them speak together, and they say, The weird sisters, hand in hand, posters of the sea and land, 
thus do go about about thrice to thine and thrice to mine and thrice again to make up nine peace the charms wound up the word weird appears nowhere else in shakespeare only in this play and only describing these women weird w-y-o-r-d as an ancient word for fate or wayward contracted to weird have both been suggested as origins for this we still have an association of strangeness and worry with the word weird and this is where it comes from these three women presumably join hands and move to seal up this spell they call themselves posters of the sea and land this suggests their ability to move quickly from place to place Later on, they'll show almost magical abilities for disappearance. They move about, about, possibly dancing, activating various spaces for their charm. And, you guessed it, they do it in threes. Thrice to thine, and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. More threes, more magical numbers, and then peace. The charms wound up. And God help the tiger. Perhaps because the witches of Macbeth are so famous and so familiar, we tend to consider them almost a cliché. We think we know what's going on. But we have to imagine the context in which this play appeared, in a year in which there were a great many other plays about witches and witchcraft. And really, look at all the things that Shakespeare is doing. We are getting repeated proof that these are witches, presumably for King James's entertainment. But even within the context of the story, these anecdotes about killing pigs or messing with sailors are full of images that we will come to recognise. Washing blood from the hands, a lack of children, separation between a husband and wife, and tortured insomnia are all going to figure later in the play. This little scene, for all its witchy detail and supernatural entertainment, is also a harbinger of the things that are to come. And as soon as the charm is wound up, as if on cue, Macbeth appears. Obviously we've waited this long, and we'll save his first line for the next episode. Thank you, as always, for tuning in, and for the various fascinating emails I've received. I do my best to respond to all of them, and if you haven't heard from me yet, please do bear in mind that this isn't my full-time job, and there are only so many hours in the week, but I will get to you. But do please keep the comments coming. It's great to hear from you, whether via email or indeed on social media, where you can find the podcast at Hamlet Podcast. Somebody actually asked me last week if I was keeping the original name because of the superstitions that surround the name Macbeth. But frankly, it's more that I want people to know where to find me. And since we've all been together this long, we'll stay where we are. I hope you're enjoying the play so far and these new episodes. And I'll speak to you next time.